invite you to turn this evening to Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we'll commence reading at verse 13. We looked at this last Lord's Day, and we come this evening to consider verses 17 through 19, but we'll just back up a little to verse 13 and read from there. Luke chapter 6, verse 13, and when it was day... He called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, in the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Amen. We read a, end our reading there. May the Lord bless these, just these three verses that we're considering before we get to uh, the record given of the Beatitudes in Luke's gospel. And I trust the Lord will bless the word to us. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, every word of God is pure. And there are certain passages that just jump out and they capture our attention, our imagination, and they thrill our souls. Other portions seem to just be shuffled into a corner. They seem to sit in the shadows. And at times we, we can go for years without really being encouraged by what they present to us. So Lord, we pray tonight as we look at verses that Maybe it seems somewhat uh, not preachable, not really something for us to take much time to look at. And yet, I trust our hearts will be really encouraged. Speak to us, Lord. Every word, every single word is there to encourage and to bless us. We pray tonight, since Thou dost know the need of every heart, command the appropriate blessing to every soul. Give help to thy people to hear. And for those that are still lost in their sin, they're dead in a condition of unbelief. Oh God, save them. They may be sitting there just waiting for the meeting to end. They are as fools without any interest in the words of life. Oh God, I pray, 
in spite of the natural folly, may the Spirit of God cause them to be quickened, made to live and receive the engrafted Word that is able to save their very souls. So help us here, Lord. Help us greatly. Magnify Christ in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Every December, we love to sing that hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. It's one of those interesting hymns or carols because when you look at it and you actually read the words, you start to wonder, why do we sing this at the Lord's first advent? Who started that? Why did that become commonplace? I'm not sure of Watts' eschatology. I don't know exactly all what he believed in relation to the Lord's second advent, but when you read the lines of that hymn, either he was a very optimistic post-millennialist, or he's dealing with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the verses says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And you could apply that, if you again, depending just to where you align yourself in these things, but I'm not exactly sure from what point he was writing that. But what curse is he referring to? As far as the curse is found, it is, of course, that curse of death that touches everything in the created world. Everything that leads to death, that which is experienced by all creatures of the dust, and the very fact that we will all one day, should the Lord tarry, return to the dust, is it not a sober reminder of where we come from and where we're going to. Every time we see someone laid to rest, as it were, this is where we're going. But it's not only us. The entire creation is impacted. The creation that we can see, the creation that we live in, everything touched by the curse. When the atom was discovered, it was thought that it was the smallest thing in the universe. And then, of course, scientists have better microscopes and so on, and they said, oh, actually, that's not the case. In fact, we can split this, and there's protons and neutrons and electrons here as well, and they're, they're, the, they're the fundamental particles of the world. And then, then scientists discovered, well, actually, there's something even smaller than that. that protons and neutrons are made of quarks, and so quarks are the smallest thing that men have found in this universe. But every quark, whatever that is, is affected by the fall. It groans under the curse, impacted by Adam's sin. And again, going back to the hymn, far as the curse is found, when you think about that, that that every atom, proton, neutron, electron, quark, whatever you want to use, is all impacted by the curse. 
Christ has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Watts may have been thinking of the second coming, but whatever the case, there's a sense in which even those who are not post-millennial may look at, in a wonderful way, through the Gospels, see little glimpses of what the future holds, a little peek into the eternal day and what the experience will be for us who are in Christ. Revelation 21, verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. A new heavens, a new earth, and the experience is entirely different. The verses that we have read here tonight and where we're focusing, particularly verses 17 through 19, are such verses that give us a little glimpse into Christ's influence as far as the curse is found. In these verses, there's no sermon, there's no dialogue, there's no specific event really, but it is an insight for our hearts and for the good of our souls that should encourage us as we consider them and meditate upon them this evening with the Lord's help. And so I've entitled my message simply, Far as the Curse is Found. Far as the Curse is Found. And note with me, first of all, the extent of the multitude gathered. The extent of the multitude gathered. We read in verse 17, He came down with them, as with the twelve that are noted previously, and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of them, out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. How many are there? Great multitude. All these people, as well as all the many disciples that still were there at that time, along with the apostles. How many? I can't say. There was 5,000 at the the feeding that we're called the feeding of the 5,000, but that was just the men. There were women and there were children. There may have been 10, 15, 20, 25,000. We have no idea. But in this early stage of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were occasions where there were multitudes. Truly, that is the right term. Tens of thousands gathered to hear what he had to say to see what he was able to do and to receive the benefits of his healing ministry. So we have the apostles that are here mentioned. As we said, he came down with them. That's the apostles. We have the disciples, the company of his disciples. We have those from Judea and Jerusalem and those from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And there's almost like contrasts here as I consider this. You have the apostles which are largely committed. With the exception of Judas Iscariot, they are largely committed. They're going to prove their commitment. They're going to continue on, even though there's going to reach a stage where multitudes would leave. And when we read of the the disciples and the company of his disciples from which he took the twelve, of them we're going to discover that they are not committed. Turn for a moment to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And this is after the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, 
the day after the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, and John records the tremendous sermon, some of the dialogue that occurred on that day after the feeding of the 5,000. And the Lord Jesus is pressing the point of His uniqueness and what one must do in in terms of really receiving Him. It's not just to have a desire to make Him king. There is a true receiving of Him that requires a further commitment, a commitment that many were unwilling to give. So verse 64, there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray Him. And He said, therefore, And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So out of the disciples, those that perhaps were given some responsibility, maybe even preached on occasion and were involved in maybe some aspects of of ministry, from that crowd, many... Many turned back. They went back and walked no more with them. There's a sense of finality there. They have made a decision. They get further clarity on the commitment required and they come to a decision, no. Verse 67, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So you see here a contrast in the broad group of the disciples. And the apostles are distinguished not just by the fact they're apostles, but because they're among a number that will not go back, that they want to to exercise that commitment. They have, they have shown commitment up to this point and they are still committed and there's no turning back in their mind. But among the disciples, among that company that we read of in Luke chapter 6, the company of His disciples, there is a great number of them in the future are going to decide no more. This is what happens. This, this, this is a, a snapshot of the life of the church. Not everyone within the pale of her walls that, that comes into the influence of her preaching, that participates with, it, with her sacraments and all that's involved in the church of Jesus Christ, not everyone truly has the root of the matter. Not everyone is saved. Not everyone is born again. Not everyone knows the full commitment of being a new creature and being compelled to follow Christ regardless of the consequences. At this present time, they are still there. But as I say, there's this contrast, a contrast that will become more evident in a future day. The apostles and the company of the disciples. And then, there's the great multitude of people. And where this great multitude come from? They come from Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And there's there's, there's, a, there's a distinction there too, isn't there? A very clear one. There are those that are from the religious districts. Those that are familiar with the Word of God. 
those that understand what, what the Lord says, perhaps, as He relates Himself to be Messiah and teaches from the Scriptures, and, and they, they, they know more. They, they get it. And as there are perhaps little conversations that unfold within the company that are gathered, and, and they're discussing while well, He's saying this, and, uh, that, that, and they maybe have their own conversations of trying to get greater clarity over what He is saying and the full weight of His words and so on. That they, these ones, those in Judea and Jerusalem, they, they have greater insight. From their use, they have been instructed in the Word. They know the Scriptures. They're familiar with many of the religious phraseology. But on the flip side, you have those from Tyre and Sidon. Areas of Phoenicia, there in the, the very north, north of Galilee, on the coastline. This is Gentile region. And the Lord Jesus would pass by those coasts on a number of occasions, at least once or twice from memory. He would, he would go by those coasts. But largely, that would not be the focus of His ministry. But these people on this occasion, they're coming down. They're traveling all these miles to, to come and witness what's going on. And they do not have the privileges. They're not able from, from Tyre or Sidon to tune in online and benefit from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no clue what's going on. They have to be there in person to receive any benefit. And so they make this commitment. They, they, they travel all these miles. They, they move down there. But there is this, this, again, very clear difference between those who are from Judea and Jerusalem and those from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And when you bring it all together, you see that, that what the Lord is doing here it is, it's, it's, it's as far as the curse is found. His relevance his significance, His power, His work reaches to all and is significant for all. And where the rubber meets the road is what will men do? Being there, maybe part of the apostles, they're right in the inner group. The disciples, they're, they're somewhat in this more privileged group. The religious, those that are familiar, they're, they're there and and they have a decision to make. And then those from Tyre and Sidon, they're also there. But you have this expanse, this variation of humanity present there. And Christ is relevant to them all. But will they all believe? Will they be saved? It's a wonderful image of what the work of the work that the Lord Jesus Christ is about, saving souls, wherever they're from. They came, some of them with diseases, some, you see at the end of 17, verse 17, they came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. Different motivations, different reasons, but they're there nonetheless. And of course, they can't benefit from this unless they, they, they come near. If, if they're wanting to, be, to hear the Word, they have to be there. If they want to receive the benefit of the healing, they have to be there to have any opportunity whatsoever. They have to bring themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. What forward movement do you make towards Christ? From one week to the next, what forward movement do you make towards Christ? I've been struck 
few weeks ago it was really, just going through the minor prophets and just seeing the emphasis upon seeking. It's just this repeated emphasis upon seeking the Lord. The Lord is, is calling to a rebellious people to seek me, seek me, seek me. Like you, you can summarize the desire, the divine desire presented to man in that word, seek me. Just seek me. What seeking are you doing? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you a seeker, true seeker of the Lord Jesus Christ? You seek after His Word. You're like them. They come to hear Him. Maybe you have your problems. Do you, do you go to Him with them to be healed of their diseases? Do, do you go to Him or where do you go with your problems? Are you a seeker of the Lord Jesus Christ? This Greenville has been so blessed. There's no doubt. This area has been so blessed. The churches everywhere are a testament to past blessing. That's what it is. It's every time you see a church, and you may look around, and you can think about it in different ways. You can think about, oh, look at church splits and all of that. You can, you can think about it in a negative way. But think about it in the positive. Imagine you get rid of them all. What would that be a sign of? No preaching. And all the churches, and they have their, there's bad ones and good ones and mediocre ones, all of that, of course. But, but, but each one has a history, and many of them. Many of them have a solid history, no doubt. And it's a sign, it's a sign of what God has done in this area. That in the past, there were a people who were seekers of God. And in every little community, walking distance to, to them, they, could, they, could, they built their little church and they would, they would go there and attend the services and so on and so forth and live out their Christian life. And so when you see them all, and yes, again, there's lots that you can say that's negative, but, but it's an evidence that Christ has passed this way. He's been here. He has blessed His gospel. He has saved souls. Our work has been done. But are man seekers today? Churches may still be relatively full. People are still there, attending many of them. But are they seekers? And so I bring it back here. Just like out there, the people sitting in pews involved in a little congregation somewhere in Greenville or in the county. But it's very possible, nay, it is very likely, that it's a mixed multitude. Some are not seekers of Christ. Christ is willing to gather them all in. In fact, when I, when I read this and I saw the, the expansive people, the great multitude and where they're coming from, I thought to myself, how did the disciples ever get it into their head that at some point the Lord Jesus Christ would not want people coming near to Him? Think of Mark 10 and they're trying to bring the children to Him. At what point did they think that... The Lord doesn't really want anyone to bother Him. 
The, the, the example here is the complete opposite. There are thousands, I would imagine, thousands of people, and they're all coming. They all gather around. Look at verse 19. The whole multitude sought to touch him. There's just, he's being swarmed by people. And there, there's no hesitation. There's no rebuke. There's no insight that he was not willing. They all received benefit. Look, healed them all at the end of verse 19. They all received what they came for. Christ is more than willing to reach out to men and to help them. What could enter the mind of the disciples, I will never know. But they're not unique. We can get to a point just like them where we in ourselves, we wonder, well, is the Lord really that willing to, to reach out to men regardless of where they're from or who they are? I know, I know we're not in favor of the, the movement known as the seeker-sensitive movement. And I have jested, I think, in the past about some of the new strategies of naming churches. And somewhat humorous at times when you, how did they think of this? <laughs> What's going on in their head? What about that reflects anything to do with real church life? But at the same time, when you see just how willing the Lord Jesus Christ is to receive men from wherever they're from, great multitude, thousands, thousands, just an expanse of people, just a, a sea of people, religious, irreligious, familiar with the Word of God, unfamiliar with the Word of God, the clean side of the broad road, the filthy side of the broad, whatever. They're all there. And the name given to him was the greatest invitation to this multitude. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Savior. Deliverer. This, this, every time they would mention his name, Jesus of Nazareth, here's what he do, he's doing. And when they would account all that was being recorded in relation to what he was doing, it would match with the name. Well, isn't that a perfect match? He saves. He delivers. And so it was like a sign that was divine advertising of what the Lord was all about. I'm here to save. I'm here to save. And we can get to a point where we lose that as the core, the core, the foundation of what we must be about. It's, it's letting men and women know Jesus saves. He saves. He actually saves. And instead we, we argue over well, what, what should we name our church? And well, we're Presbyterian. We're Baptist. We're Methodist. And, and I, I was just pausing over that and thinking, what about any? And I'm not, I'm, not discrediting, I'm, I'm not discrediting the value of it. But I was thinking, what about any of that matters to a lost soul? Presbyterian, so what? Your form of God, what does that even mean? Baptist, I, I just need to be saved. <laughs> That they need us to be saved. And again, I'm not being harsh here. I'm just bringing perspective that 
that the primary message, what the Lord was about, was making humanity know He was there to save. That He was willing to save. That He was offering freely salvation. And the primary message had to be, Jesus Christ saves. And so they would make the, the, the massive journey from Tyre and Sidon all the way down, trying to figure out where is he now? And talking to people as they pass through each town. Has he been through here? Where have they gone? Do you know what direction they went? And trying to locate, where, where is he? And then at some point they would see in the horizon, amidst the, all the, the shimmering of the sunshine, of the heat of the day, they could see something that looked like a huge crowd of people. It must be there. And as they grew closer, they could see the expanse of humanity gathered around one man who was there to save. That's why he's there. To save. This has to be echoed and wafted and sent out by every Christian. Jesus saves. I know that theologically Jesus is the only real seeker. Romans 3, none seeketh after God. Luke 15, he's the shepherd who seeks after the lost. I, I, I understand that. But the Spirit moves. We have no idea when he is moving and making a, a soul willing to listen. And so orchestrating events within their life that they become receptive to a message they never give two thoughts to in the whole history of their lives. And you're the messenger that's going to bring that timely message, a word in season, to say, Jesus saves. Oh, what is that extent of the multitude gathered? So varied, so needy. Yet Jesus Christ was the answer for them all. As far as the curse was found, nationality didn't matter, extent of sin did not matter, past history did not matter. Just get yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same applies today. I don't care about your past. I don't care about your history, family history, personal history. I don't care about your knowledge, your intellectual awareness of the Word of God, or whether you hardly know a thing. As long as, long as you know you're a sinner and you understand that Jesus Christ is the sole answer for sin and the one you need to seek in order to be saved and have your sins washed away, that He alone is God's remedy he alone went to the cross. He alone paid the sacrifice. He alone shed His blood to make atonement. And He alone rose from the dead the third day. And you rest in that. This, this is God's answer for me. This is what I have needed my entire life. That is what you must receive and believe. 
Secondly, the extent of the maladies addressed. The extent not only of the multitude gathered, but of the maladies addressed. We have different maladies here that we have made mention of. There are mental maladies. What do I mean by that? Well, there's, there's something wrong with, or there's a deficiency at least, in what they know. How do I know that? They came to hear him. Verse 17. They came to hear him. They came to hear him to receive information, to receive instruction, teaching. They came to, to learn what they, what they prior to that time did not know. And this is part of, of the fame and what's spreading is the fact that never a man spake like this man. He's not like the scribes. He speaks as one having authority. There's, there's, there's this heavenly unction. There's, there's clearly God is with him. Even the religious are knowing that. Nicodemus comes and confesses that. We know. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. And so they come. They come out to hear. They come to hear the message that they need to receive. The message that would save their souls. The message that would change their very lives. The message that was the, the entire message of their Old Testament that, that God is providing salvation. He is sending one. And every time those that were, would practice their, their various Jewish ceremonies and so on, they would sit at Passover and they would be pointed to the Lamb. And the whole message of it was, was pointing forward. This is the need. There's the shedding of blood required. There's a sacrifice necessary. There's a Lamb that God will provide. Oh yes, like Genesis 22. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Not just your material needs. But foundationally, the greatest need of your soul to be saved, have your sins forgiven. Mental maladies. This is, this is really the, the greatest problem men have because they can get everything else straightened out. They can get their diseases healed and their unclean spirits removed. But if their mind is not instructed and their hearts are not subdued and their souls are not saved, what does it matter? What does it matter? This was one of the points that was made when in a town near, and I may have mentioned this before, but a town near where I grew up, walking through the town, and it was a town that um, I had done some evangelism myself in, although it wasn't our town, so there was another free Presbyterian church in that town, really their area as it were. But there was a Pentecostal group standing there in the center of the town, and, and when they spoke to you, nothing of the gospel. The literature they handed out, Nothing of the gospel. I mean, nothing. Nothing. And the point was made in conversation. Okay, you're here to, to heal people, apparently. And you're going to pray for them. And those that are in wheelchairs are going to get up and walk away. And you have, you have props here to, to try and emphasize that this is what is possible. Yes, they had them. They were bringing them out. Wheelchairs and canes and so on. As if, as if this is what they, one could expect. Just like some other imaginary person, you'll, just, you'll leave your cane behind and walk off and never need it again. 
I'm trying to make, make them see. So someone comes who's a lifelong cripple, never walked in their lives. And they get up and they run and they're so filled with glee and they, they run across the road without looking and they're into eternity. And what's the point? And not one word of the gospel in your literature or in your message and conversation. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They have no clue. Not a clue. They came to hear him. Well, you're gathered here tonight. I don't know if you've come to hear. Hear from God. Hear from the Lord Jesus. I don't know. I trust you have. Only the fool sits and does not want to be instructed. May God give you ears to hear. It's not only mental maladies, there's physical maladies. Healed of their diseases. There were some who came to be healed of their diseases. Maybe both. They came to hear and to be healed of their diseases. Some may have required both. Certainly some may have come to be healed, but the real benefit they received was hearing. Well, that was not the initial plan. But again, the Lord, the Lord did this. He healed people. He healed them. And again, the end of verse 19, He healed them all. He healed them all, the thousands of them. Oh, what a Savior. Again, what's the point? As far as the curse is found. <laughs> Wherever the curse is found, what is the answer? Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is illustrated by the healing. That he is the life-giving Son of God. He delivers men and women from their maladies. And here in person, He healed their diseases. Even the apostles never saw the like of this. And their spiritual maladies. Verse 18 and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, they were healed. Unclean spirits, spiritual maladies, being spiritually tormented, demons and other evil spirits of whatever sort that, that men struggled with, sometimes for years. This awful demonic influence, the activity of the devil in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is quite startling. In fact, what we, what we read in the Gospels, it... it it doesn't, isn't really reflected anywhere else, at least to the extent that we find it. You read through the Old Testament, you don't find all these multitude of people being, being possessed with demons. It's not, it's not as widespread as you have in the life of the Lord Jesus. It's almost as if with the, with the incarnation and with the devil seeing Christ come into the world, that in all his years of preparation, all his years of waiting in the, in the background, that the, the devil is garnering together all his power. And maybe even concentrating it upon the very area, the very place where the, his ministry is going to be most effective, right there in Galilee, in Judea. And so everywhere he goes, there's these demon-possessed people, there's, there's all this demonic activity. It's like Satan is, is raising an army on a concentrated place right there where God's answer for men is found. He's doing everything in his power. And the Lord Jesus, 
with all the effort of hell. They were healed. All of them. <laughs> Devil doing his worst. Trying to destroy lives. Still about that business, you know. Maybe these days his, his armies are spread a little more thin across the world. I don't know. But he's working. Trying to damn souls. Destroy lives. And some of you are maybe easy pickings. You're just you're an easy target. Because you're playing with the devil. Playing games with your soul. Playing games spiritually. Maybe don't think that way. You don't wake up in the morning and think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play games here. I'm playing games with my soul. Playing games with eternity. Playing games with the devil. You don't, you're not maybe thinking that conscientiously, but that's what you're doing as you turn away from Christ, away from the gospel, and give yourself to sin. Give yourself to things that ruin the soul. That suck the very goodness of the Word of God away from you. You just see Lord's Day after Lord's Day, the fowls of the air come, and oh, there's easy pickings. I'll just, I'll just take the seed of the Word away from them because there's no desire to harbor it in the heart. There's no longing to see it bear fruit. The Word is preached and you never give a thought about it. There's no prayer or concern that 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 seed of the Word would take root within your soul and bear fruit unto God. But that's, that's what's necessary. Instead, you sit there, a stony ground hearer, and the Word's going out. Nothing wrong with the seed. But you're just callously indifferent And it's sitting there, and before you're out the door of the church and home, the seed is gone. Your conscience isn't even pricked as you put your head in the pillow, walking away from the Word of God without a thought of how carelessly you handled the gospel of Christ. Graves the soul. Graves the soul. Yes, you have your maladies, whatever they may be, Christ. He is indeed the answer. Thirdly, the extent of the methods used. The extent of the methods used. Through the Gospels, we see Christ laying hands on people. We see Him commanding demons to depart, instructing people to go and watch, and variations of the above. But here we're told of one of the more unusual methods that is used. And verse 19, the whole multitude sought to touch him. There went virtue out of him and healed them all. He sought just to touch him. Here they're reaching out to him. And by reaching out to him, they receive what they're looking for. It's amazing. What a truth it conveys. Or what truths it conveys. There are no doubt other truths, but just a couple. 
to consider. First, when we think of this particular method that is highlighted by Luke, and how these people received the benefit that they sought from Christ, we learn that contact with Christ is the answer for the curse. You are born a child of Adam. You can't change that. You can't alter that. That's the way it is. You're born a child, a descendant from Adam. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death is passed to all men. And you're under that. You, you can't avoid that. You can't change it. Your parents can't do anything before you're conceived in order to alter it. It's, it's the way it is. So your only hope is to come into contact with, with the last Adam. To come into contact with with Jesus Christ. You need to be connected to Him, not to the first Adam. And this is the, the need of men to come into proximity, even to use the language of the epistles more fully, the union with Christ. To be in union with Him. If you're in union with Him, then that makes all the difference. God sees you as in union with this man, not the first man. And so you can't just drift on with no contact with Christ. That will not do. You can't be saved with a, by being at a distance from Christ. You must come into contact with Him. And what a scene this is. It's, it's hard to fathom. Just as people, they come and touch Him and, and immediately whatever the ailment and trouble, problems, is gone. It's hard to imagine. Just, the scene, the scene, not just of the, of the reaching and the touching. Think about it for a second. Not just the reaching and the touching, but every soul among the multitude who did that. Do you think they walked away like they just bought a gallon of milk? Think, think of the joy. There must have been such commotion, such a volume of praise and joy, and elation. And they're all clamoring to get into the Lord Jesus, is to touch Him. And then that, that 12-year ailment, that lifelong disability, gone. <laughs> Can you imagine the joy, the sounds, the scenes? Inhabiting the sinless frame of Jesus Christ with such a fullness of grace that mere contact with Him dealt with the aspects of the curse. John 1.16, And of His fullness have all we received. Life so flowed from Him that by touching Him, the visible aspects of death disappeared. Whatever it was, it was indicating these people were going to die. Or they were suffering some ailment that reflected the curse. It just, it just was gone. We became new creatures, we might say, physically at least. But it's, but it's symbolic of what 
happens when you come into contact with Christ. There's, there's real change. They came from wherever they came from, Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon. They, they, they came in their droves to the Lord. They came one way, and they went away another way. They were different. They were changed. Some of them with disabilities, it took them days and days and days to get there. It was slow going. It was, it was toil because of the inability to move and whatever. But, but they, 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 they cut their way, the, the, the time to get home by in half or, or maybe even more. They're able to skip home, running with joy, life transformed. And it's just, it's just, just a little insight into the gospel. It's what the Lord Jesus does. He changes people. It's not a little transaction where you come to him and he says, here, look, here's your ticket for heaven. Take it with you and I'll see you <laughs> in a few years. No. There's change. There's transformation. People are made new. And the old sins of the past, they begin to die. Because that's what the Lord does. He begins to touch as far as the curse is found. And that foul tongue, he, he just changes it. That imagination that dwells in a pit of sin continually, he begins to just dry up that pit and elevate those thoughts so they're set in heavenly things. And that eye that lusts, heart that covets, he makes content with himself. Real change. Have you had that change? Do you evidence that change? Do people see it in you? Can you preach the gospel? Knowing what it is you're preaching about? Are you saved? What a tragedy. All the times that you've come into close proximity with the Lord Jesus... And you've just stood there like some kind of, someone on the outskirts of it all. You're just watching. You're watching everyone else. Oh, look. There's my neighbor. And he's coming back with the biggest smile on his face that you ever, you've ever seen. Because of the difference that the Lord Jesus Christ made in his life. But you're just standing there watching all these people gather and touch the Lord and return home with joy. And you're standing there just watching, watching others receive the benefits and never coming yourself. Oh, sister played it in the offertory. Bring them in. Bring them in from the fields of sin. Bring the wandering ones to Jesus. It's hard to do that if you have never been brought yourself. You won't want to. You'll have no desire to. You're not interested in it. You don't have it in, the, in your soul. Your spiritual life is non-existent, really. And you're still on the road to hell. The other lesson we learn from this touching of the Lord is, that, is the freeness of salvation. Not just that contact with Christ 
is the answer for the curse. But we see the freeness of salvation. They're coming to Him, and of their volition, their own volition, they're, they're touching Him and receiving the benefits. Could there be a greater illustration of the free offer of salvation? That Christ makes it so free? Just touch, just touch me. And you'll be made whole. Whosoever will may come. He stands and cries on that last day of the feast. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Come to me. And here, here you have it. Just, just a little, just a f- three verses that are so quickly passed over. It would have been so easy not to, to consider these verses, but, but when you stop and see what's going on here, and the freeness of Christ to, to just change the experience of men who will come to Him and receive what He has to offer. Just touch Him. The whole multitude sought to touch Him. The whole multitude sought to touch Him. We go back to where we were at the beginning. Seeking the Lord. Are you seeking to touch Him? Do you reach out? Is there that hand of faith that reaches out to receive from Christ the forgiveness of sins, deliverance from hell, the indwelling Spirit, the promise of heaven? Are you reaching? Are you reaching? What's coming in? Something coming into your mind? Something there in your unbelieving heart? You know you need to reach out. You know you need to be saved. But there's all these reasons that just keep your arms clamped to your side, folded, standing stubbornly as everyone else. One after another. Go to Christ. And there your brother saved. And your sister saved. And your mom saved. And your dad saved. And this person saved. And over a course of your life, people are coming to Christ. Maybe have grown up in the church and some your age, they're, they're beginning to go on with God. They're beginning to serve God. They're get, beginning to get involved because, well, they have life. And they want to share it. They want others to know. They're, they're like those that are returning from this visit and they, they must be telling, look, He's there. Go. Don't sit there with your ailment. Go and seek Christ. And they want to bring others. They want to encourage others. But you're still sitting. You've made no progress in this way. Not involved in evangelistic ministry. You have no interest in the things of God. There's just a spiritual dearth. And yet you're so blind to it, but it is right there. Every, anyone who's, who really would know you, there's just a deadness. No life. Oh, may the Lord, may the Lord even extend as far as the curse is found, especially in the 
lostness of your condition before God, may he extend his saving arm to you this night. Let's bow together in prayer. No, I don't say these things and make these challenges for the good of my own self. I'm targeting you as you sit there in your condition of unbelief. I am targeting you. I don't want you to feel comfortable. Would you want me to make you feel at ease here so you can suffer under the wrath of God for eternity? No, no I, I try to make you a little uncomfortable here. Help you understand your sin and the importance of getting to Christ so that you do not ever experiencing, experience anything of the wrath of God against sin. If I can help you, please come and see me. Lord, we pray, save the lost in this place. We pray, should any fail to reach out and have yet in their lives failed to truly, by faith, reach out and take Christ for themselves, We ask, O God, have mercy upon their souls. We pray that that seed of the word will find good ground. We pray that the fowls of the air will have no opportunity to rob the benefit of having heard the gospel. God, have mercy. Hear the prayers from loved ones going up into thy presence even now. Names of souls that weigh upon the hearts of thy people. God, save we pray. Be with us in our fellowship here before we leave this place. Bless the food provided for those that will go downstairs. And go with all thy people as we face the world. May thy hand be upon thy church this week. May the Holy Ghost empower her in an unusual way. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with and upon all thy people. Now and evermore. Amen.